0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Doug Collum. Welcome, everybody, to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. Um, everybody's coming back from vacation. I know I just, uh, from Thanksgiving, I know I just parachuted in from, from Lake Tahoe. We've got two great guests, this program coming up on the first up, we have Jason Gardner, who's the founder and CEO of Marquetta, which is a startup based out of Oakland that works with businesses for credit card related services. And we'll spend more time, a lot more time on that. Uh, Bay Area Ventures is about startups and venture capital here, principally in the San Francisco Bay Area. So our first guest is Jason Gardner, founder and CEO of Marquetta. Welcome, Jason. Good to have you on board. Thanks for having me, Doug. So uh, just to begin, as kind of a thumbnail sketch, what does Marquetta do? I I don't capture these things very well, so I depend upon our guest to set me straight.
1: Marquette is an open platform for modern card issuing. So modern card issuing is uh, the ability for companies to build card products, whether they be Visa, MasterCard, Discover. So credit
0: card or debit card?
1: Credit cards, debit cards, prepaid cards. They could be physical plastic. Uh, They could be virtual cards. Um, So, you know, a a number on a, a phone or something like that. Uh, or a tokenized card, which is a card that fits into Apple Pay or Android Pay. So we give the ability for companies like Square, Instacart, DoorDash uh, to build these products to either support their core business or be their core business.
0: So we'll definitely jump more into this, but is it fair to characterize it as a platform, in effect? It's, it's plat- it covers multiple services that businesses businesses need
1: it's a it's a platform that is delivered via an open API an API is an application program interface uh, it's basically tools and information so that developers can build products on top of that they build products that make uh, calls to these apis and it creates a certain function. Uh, Around uh, a card product, Uh, and again, the card products could be physical plastic cards, virtual cards, uh, tokenized cards for Apple Pay and Android Pay.
0: Okay, good. So your background—it's always interesting for me to talk to people, and you know, I do have a dossier on you, and so (laughs) it includes. I mean, there's things, you know, there's there are things that jump out at me. Like I understand you—you at one point in your in your entrepreneurial career, you were selling tie-dyed t-shirts, and you worked at Club Med, and you worked in Washington, D.C. I mean, you've got a, I would say it's a varied background. So maybe you can comment on
1: that yourself. Well, I've had little businesses since I was a little kid. Um, You know, when it snowed, I was grabbing a shovel to go shovel people's driveways. I'd pick weeds uh, and mow people's lawns in the summers. Where where are you from? Uh, I'm from New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a, a town called Fairhaven, which is in Monmouth County, New Jersey, Uh, I spent most of my life there, um, left there in uh, late 80s, went to school at Arizona State. And uh, I had a tie-dye business in uh, kind of senior year of high school. Um, Really? I've been a deadhead most of my life. Um, I started seeing uh, dead shows, Grateful Dead, since I was about 17. And uh, my sister was making tie-dyes, and I started making them. It was uh, a lot of fun. Um, I made a lot of money um, in high school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I uh, brought that to college. In my freshman year of college, um, made tie dyes and uh, tie dyed socks, uh, underwear, uh, pajamas, t shirts. Um, you name it. So um, it was great. And I, I worked my way whole through through college. So um, freshman year was great to. Uh, so uh, have so, my own it, so
0: so carry on. What took you back to Washington D.C. after selling tie dyed t shirts in college?
1: So I didn't, actually didn't go for D.C. I, work, I worked for McCain in Arizona. John McCain, um, yeah. yeah. I had visited D.C., thought I wanted to get into politics. I actually graduated uh, from Arizona State uh, with a degree in political science. Mm. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, I worked for uh, Senator McCain's office for about a year and a half uh, I was a constituent liaison covering Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and this was like back in the nineteen nineties, back 2000s? I, I believe ninety one, ninety two. Okay, kind of yeah. dating myself, but yeah. it was uh, it was a ways back when. Um, I loved it. Uh, what I learned uh, in working with politics, especially being you know very very junior, um, your opinion doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, and being a Jewish kid from New Jersey, um, I'm very outspoken, um, very gregarious personality and, uh, I would have found it pretty difficult to work in, work in Washington. So, um, I finished, uh, uh I worked for McCain's, uh, finished school, um, backpacked Europe for about four months, Wow! Um, went back yeah. to New Jersey and then packed my car up and moved to California. My dad was living in Mill Valley. Uh, lived with him for about nine months. Um, I was actually a day laborer. Uh, for about three months, building jacuzzis uh, for a landscaper. God, this and is then, amazing. And then I got my first um, tech job, started my first company, uh, Vertical Think, in 98, second company. So pause a
0: sec, though. What brought you to California then? It was your father living in, in Mill Valley?
1: Uh, technology. So Even um, then? Um, after- even then, I was, I was into uh, technology when I was about, the computers, when I was about nine years old. Um, I was one of these sort of self-taught folks, you know, would take yep. apart irons and radios and try to figure if I can, uh, use frequency waves to increase the heat on an iron. Uh, my mom would say whenever we got something electronic in the house, you'd always take it apart and never put it back together again. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of fun. And, yeah. uh, when he moved out here, um, my dad moved out here, I think in 84, uh, I had really never been outside the tri-state area, mm-hmm. uh, yep. and came to visit him and. Uh, all I wanted to do was villi- visit Silicon Valley, which I thought was like a mountain of Silicon. It turned out it wasn't. Uh, we went to Apple and HP uh, and Intel campuses. And this is, um, this is back really during some
0: of the formative, well, it's too early, some of the, the, during the surge of Silicon Valley from the 1980s to the 2000s, right? I mean, so yeah, you, was, you witnessed a lot of that. Then.
1: Yeah, was, uh, I, I came out to visit him when I, I think I was about 14 yeah. Uh, and I just, I fell in love and I knew it's where I wanted to be. Uh, I had to, f- as soon as I finished college, I told him I was going to be moving to California. And, um, yeah. I've been here ever since moved here in, uh, 1994.
0: So what was, what was your first exposure to a tech company then?
1: Uh, actually my first exposure to a tech company, it was <laughs> actually my first exposure to the internet. Um, it was a small, uh, company in Emeryville. I can't even remember the name of it. They sort of built custom computers. Yeah. And uh, my first day, I sat down and I got, I was at a desktop. Uh, The office manager set me up and she said, Oh, I'm going to send you an email. And I didn't even know what an email was. Uh, But it sounded cool. It sounded very cool. Um, She sent me an email and I was completely blown away. And then um, some folks there had shown me the internet, which, you know, back then was um, very nascent. And um, I was. Knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was work in technology. So,
0: so, talk a little bit about some of the the main the highlights of the companies that you've worked
1: with before you 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 founded uh, Marquetta. Uh, so before, so founded Marquetta back in 2010. Uh, back in 2004, uh, co-founded a company uh, named Property Bridge that was founded in uh, downtown Oakland. Uh, so, actually, the first uh, venture capital firm, first VC ever in Oakland, made their first investment in a company in Oakland, and that was uh, Property Bridge. Uh, we started that in 2004. We sold that to MoneyGram International in 2007. Uh, before that, uh, my first kind of entrepreneurial step in the water was back in 1998, started a company called Vertical Think. Hmm. Uh, was a sort of early Elance type of company where um, you know you're bringing together it was web development projects and and web developers. Uh, at the time, you know, obviously finding developers to do um, to do, to build websites was very hard to do, uh, especially if it was. Wait, what a switch now? I mean, yeah, it was yeah. probably it was, it was a, you know for small projects it was tough because all of the sort of the major web development firms were busy on you know these major major projects. Uh, so we found a niche um, in the marketplace where there were smaller projects where you had web developers who you know were either working at home or in small teams, and then you had large companies that had fairly small projects. So um, we connected those folks. Um, I learned a lot. The company was not successful. Uh, that, was al- I,
0: that was also a tough time, though. Too. I mean that that period where you had the dot com bust. And then the, you know, Death
1: Valley for the year or two after that or years after that. For sure. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean back in 1998, I mean, uh, south of Market was, I mean, nothing, nothing like it is today. I, know. Um, I mean, there wasn't even a ballpark there. So uh, we had this office on Bryant Street and there was these great rooftop parties every night. Uh, yeah. But it was, it was interesting. I mean, you kind of knew the dot-com bus was coming. Uh, I remember asking a friend who uh, was working for a public company at the time how they make money. And he goes, I have no idea, but we have really good equipment. So <laughs> I knew uh, I knew that the uh, the party was going to end soon. So a um, uh, company was successful, but learned a tremendous amount.
0: Boy, that was – I mean, I have to say failure is a great instructor. And, um, you know, every company that went through – that was able to survive that period, you know, the, everyone hit speed bumps. And it was – remarkable, you know, after the dust settled, after the dot-com bust and the years later, to see who was still standing in the landscape. I, I think it was, a, it was a moment of, it was a defining moment for Silicon Valley for sure. And it sounds like you definitely were in the middle of it.
1: It was. I think the, the, what it taught me is there's actually little downside to failure. Uh, what, that, what that means to me is that you learn so much about when you fail uh, that the next time is you have all of these tools to, to, you know, implement into the to the new company. You
0: know, but I would, just to rejoin you on that, um, what I've heard is that Silicon Valley is unique, <clears throat> that it's almost a badge of honor to, you know, try your hand at one or two companies and you learn a ton and the companies may or may not be successful. But if you're not successful and it's a complete bust, it's it's more like okay you've kind of earned your chops now on to the next one and you you bring that past learning with you and you apply it to your next startup whereas if you go into other areas of the united states you know there's there's a greater level of risk aversion
1: than there is here do you agree with that I agree there's a greater, greater, greater level of risk aversion outside the United States. I think in um, a lot of other countries and different cultures, failure is very much frowned upon. Yep. Um, so you don't have the sort of entrepreneurial juices uh, to go out and, and do that. You also don't have, obviously, the level of capital uh, flowing into seed stage and Series A companies, especially in the tech space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Silicon Valley, in many ways, was built on failure. Um, you have a lot of these companies that go out of business, um, or these companies are people successful and they get sold and you have these entrepreneurs that start other companies and fail, and then they turn around and they build these wildly successful companies. So it's, it's very much an embrace here. I mean, I think if, if, you know, being an entrepreneur was, you know, and going out and starting a business was easy, everybody was do it. I think if being a venture capitalist and every company you invested in was a zinger, uh, and they were successful, then everybody would do it. Um, you have to find, you know, sort of your right, uh, uh, your right idea, your right market. You got to learn how to scale. You got to hire the right people. Um, it's hard, it's hard. And, um, failure teaches you a lot about, um, the upside of building a company. And when you fail, um, the downside is not that much. I mean, it's like you went out and did it. You lost money, um, you know, from your friends, from your family, um, you, took time out of your life. You took other people's time. Uh, but in the scheme of things, you learned so much that the next time you have this set of tools to be successful. And I was very lucky. I met, um, other entrepreneurs who were failed in the past and we all got together and basically took all of our learnings and built property bridge, which was ultimately successful. And we sold that. So, um, Good and things then, happen. Yeah. yeah. And then going into Marquetta, um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew what I, had, what I needed to do. I knew how I needed to do it.
0: So what, let's, let's jump on that. What was the inspiration behind Marquetta?
1: Uh, so, started uh, after I sold Property Bridge, worked with uh, MoneyGram on a contract for about two years, um, was actually eating sushi with a friend in San Francisco. And he said, Hey, you know, I have all these Groupons uh i hate carrying around paper i really like to put these things on a card you know you're a payment near go figure this out and it was almost like being struck by lightning um by thinking
0: yeah, so there was kind of an epiphany if you will i mean that's yeah overworked. there's that aha moment really um
1: yeah. yeah where you know uh either you can have an idea or an idea has you and when the idea has you um It's almost like a force of nature. You can't stop thinking about it. Um, And then you you get in front of a whiteboard and you start to write things down and ideas. And it just builds this momentum where it's really unstoppable. Uh, And so
0: in the case that with the light bulb that went on that inspired Marquetta, were you alone were you were you whiteboarding on your own thinking through things or did you have other folks kind of cl- clustered around working with you on that
1: uh, no I'm what's known as a sole founder so Which is unusual. Uh, it's unusual it's um, unusual I think as a first time founder but as a someone who was founding a th- or co-founding a third company um, I really know what I wanted to do I know what, the culture I wanted to build the products I wanted to go build yeah so, I really dug in by myself to begin uh, and map out the architecture and what we wanted to build, and then slowly began building uh other folks in the early days to go to 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 build a business and out. you
0: had a network at that point because you had come out of property bridge, you kind of knew how how the infra where the infrastructure was, who the people were that made it work and so, when you started whiteboarding on Marquetta, it's not like you were starting without you know in effect a, a rolodex and a slate of resources
1: you have resources and tools um it doesn't make it any less hard yeah it makes it um you're more determined because you know what it's going <coughs> to take to to actually go build this business yeah and you have the contacts and the know-how uh a lot of people still say no yeah that's For- a terrible idea um you know it's uh You know, it's going to take too much money. There's no market. I mean, it it never is just like that's the greatest idea in the world. And even though you think it is, and you have to be prepared for that. And part of failure and part of success is actually learning that no is a big motivator for you.
0: Uh, For people who are just joining us, this is Bay Area Ventures. Our guest this hour is Jason Gardner, who's the CEO and sole founder of Marketa, which it is unusual to be a, a sole founder. I think in the uh, in the classes that I teach here on entrepreneurship and venture capital, I do a little bit of research. I think the average size of the founding team across whatever database they used was something like 2.4 founders. And um, typically there is a technical co-founder involved, especially, I mean, especially, of course, for tech companies where you've got, you know, technical requirements in order to build the platform necessary to launch the business. So it is unusual to be a, a solo founder. I, I mean that's still true, I think
1: it, it is it is, however, the you know there are a lot of people in the very beginning who you know today, in many ways you still think of as co-founders. Yeah so I came up with the original idea. I, I worked on the original architecture. Uh, I began raising some of the first money. Um, and some of those people are actually still with me from the very, very beginning. So there's something That's that cool. is important about that because they took, ri- they took risk. Um, they helped raise money. They helped build the architecture. They helped make the plans. They helped hire the people. Um, so a company is not, is started by, you know, by a single idea and, and with me, a single person, but, uh, there is an enormous amount of blood, sweat, and tears amongst, you know, a whole group of folks. Uh, to help make this happen, yeah,
0: and I'm not I'm not blowing smoke here, but it is true <clears throat> that they're also following you as a CEO, setting the strategy and and articulating the vision for the company. So I mean, it is it's a tribute to any CEO that's able to organize a group of people around himself or herself and and drive forward. So that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, it's cool, and it's actually a lot of fun.
0: So um, stepping back up to like a hundred thousand feet. Talk about the industry that Marquetta is in, just to give people a construct or a context for what it is that Marquetta does. What, what is this industry that you're in?
1: So the industry is... Maybe,
0: maybe the way to articulate the question is, what's the problem
1: that businesses are trying to solve? So, so today you have um, what are called payment cards. Uh, that can be Visa, MasterCard, Discover, mm-hmm. you know we talked about a credit, debit, or prepaid. And it's something we do every day. So we buy things that can be whether online or offline. It could be, you know, shopping at Trader Joe's or shopping on Amazon. Um, There is a four-party system that includes payment cards. So there are acquirers. That's what you're paying into. It's like when you swipe your uh, card at the terminal in Trader Joe's or you're entering the number online at uh, Amazon. Uh, There's a bank behind that. Yeah. Uh, there is a network, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, that's three of maybe 100 networks around the globe. And then there are what are called issuer processors, and that's what Marquetta is. So Marquetta, think about the 16 digits on a card, uh, Visa card yeah. or MasterCard, yeah. is like an, like, like an address. So when that card is swiped, uh, the terminal that you're swiping into or entering online is creating a payload of sorts with all this information around your transaction. Mm-hmm. So all of that information on that transaction, including your card number, is routed over the Internet uh to an issuer processor and that's what Marquette does so we essentially make a decision whether to authorize that transaction or not so is that a, like a credit check uh, not not it's, it's more of a, it's more of a, a check against a ledger so okay, a yeah, ledger okay, or a system okay. of record to yeah. to includes many different points of information around that mm-hmm. sort of decision making uh including whether you have uh credit Available or, or real funds available if it's a prepaid card or a debit mm-hmm. card against okay. your, your yep. bank account uh, and then in our instance, we actually package that information up and send it to our customer, and our customer uh, uh, makes a decision whether to to authorize that transaction or not so so why is that important and what what problem is it solving yeah. So, um, uh, many companies around the world, a card either supports their core business or is their core business, um, you know, supports their core business could be, uh, for what we do with square and the square cash app. Uh, I send you money. There's a card attached to that. So you can actually spend that, that money oh, at I the see. point yeah. of sale, whether yep. online yep. or offline, yep. uh, supporting the core business could be, uh, Instacart. So powering shoppers across the United States who are buying orders on the, uh, 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 for for an order that a consumer made, or um, a food you know order that the consumer made on on Doordash, and Doordash's dashers are picking that food up. Uh, a core business could be a, a expense management card and an app that's tied to that, so you can go um, um, you know support a small and uh, and medium business. So um, So that covers a lot of waterfront right there. I mean, it does. It's definitely a global phenomenon. So modern card issuing, uh, whether those cards are supporting the core business or are the core business, is something that's happening around the world in every single country. We're seeing where uh, cash in many ways is becoming an endangered species. You know, 99% of transactions in Scandinavian countries is done electronically. Uh, You you see where Canada's talked about going electronic and, you know, no cash. Uh, by 2025, you see in India where they're pulling you know, 500,000 rupee bills out of, out, of, uh, yeah. out of circulation, and then they're almost social engineering in a way, which is you know, having uh, the citizens in India um, uh, thumbprints and iris scans to enter them into electronic payment system. In many ways, they're trying to fight the black market, uh, which is obviously dominated by cash, as it is in every country yep. around the world. Yep. Um, so you think about that tied to what we're building in the companies that, you know, back in 2010, most of the companies that we're working with today hadn't even been invented yet. And we still believe that there are all these companies that haven't been invented yet where a card either supports their core business or is their core business around the globe. And that's why we exist is to service those customers.
0: Boy, so now, <clears throat> so dive in. First of all, um, talk about Marquetta in a kind of a, a, a snapshot, how big is, how many employees Where is it located? Um, I mean, anything, how much funding have you raised today? I mean, just give us a profile of the company so we can appreciate what it is we're talking about when you're discussing the
1: business. Uh, We're 250 people located at a downtown Oakland, Oakland, California, in the Bay area. Uh, We've raised $116 million to date uh, from great firms like Goldman Sachs, Iconic Capital, 83 North, Grand Adventures, Commerce Ventures um it's been um it's been great we have started the company back in 2010 uh it took us about two and a half years to build the technology uh started in the early days with the Marquette card which was the kind of the the impetus which was you know putting groupons on a single piece of plastic Yep. uh we solved that problem using technology and then opened up the uh, api at the end of 2014 and have taken off like a rocket ever since so um just to ask
0: i mean kind of Taking stabs at some of the data. Why Oakland? Well, how did you end up over there? I mean, you know, we've looked at this repeatedly on the program when people come in from different parts of the Bay Area. Yeah, I saw
1: Joel Flory, who's also in downtown Oakland. Yeah so, so, yeah,
0: so how, how did you end up in Oakland? What was the decision behind that?
1: I love I love Oakland. I live in Oakland. Yeah. Um, Oakland is a very hardworking town. I think it's it's something. Uh, that it's definitely a town that's part of the Bay Area, but doesn't get the sort of the cache or the focus like San Francisco does. Um, there are very few tech companies, certainly at our scale, that are that are based in Oakland. Is
0: cost of living. An advantage in Oakland? Cost
1: of living is definitely an advantage. It turns out that a lot of the people um that we interview and have joined the company actually live in the East Bay. And East Bay all the way down to Fremont, uh, out to Marin. Um it turns yeah. out, you know, a lot of people it's very hard to, you know, not only afford San Francisco for rent, but actually find a place to rent in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Um I've lived in Oakland since two thousand two uh and it's a it's a great place. And it's it's one of these places that it gets a bad rap. Um if you don't live there, if you live there, there's just this great hardworking blue collar nature about sense it. Sense of community, I think. In a sense yeah. of community, um, there's great things to do. There's a sort of eclectic view of things um, that is it's it's tangible. It's something yeah. that it's it's very people focused. It's a great community. Um, it's I you know I can't imagine. Uh, having a company anywhere else except Oakland.
0: Are all 250 employees in Oakland, or do you have offices? No, a
1: a big majority is probably 20 or so. Uh, We have an office in London. Uh, Wow. That's about six folks. Uh, We just opened that up this year. Uh, And then the rest are scattered around, um, some down in some of the East Coast, some down in uh, Southern California and uh, in the Midwest.
0: So talk about that in terms of, I mean, where where do you start? I mean, so what? You have not just a domestic strategy, but an international strategy. You're following businesses that are in need that are in need of issuer processing services. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, our businesses modern card issuing. So, so building credit, debit, and prepaid products. I mean, you know, there are many, many, many consumers around the world that carry cards in their wallet. There are many businesses where. Uh, transactions that happen, you know, on site in their bricks and mortar stores yep. or online is yep. happening, you know, every second of every day. There are all of these businesses that have been invented. There's all these businesses that haven't been invented. Again, where that card is either supporting their core business or is their core business. It's a, it's an absolute global phenomenon about how electronic payments are growing. It's not like you know, next month we're going to wake up and paying with your credit card is a fad and we're all going to go back to cash. Like that's most likely not going to not happen. Gonna happen. Yeah. Um, we're also seeing where Asia, you know, and areas like <laughs> Vietnam, you know, only 3% of people carry a credit card. Only 7% of people even have a bank account. Uh, you look in parts of Africa, you look in parts of Latin America and South America where, you know, it's still cash is king. Like most people are not banked. Most people don't use cards. Uh, and there are many great entrepreneurs, um, great companies um, being built today, being invented today uh, that are going to leverage cards to go build and service new types of constituencies around the world
0: so when you open an office in London, six employees is is that more of an opportun opportunistic move or you 're you know suddenly there 's a business opportunity there and you just go with it, or is it because you 've got uh, a deliberate strategy we want to go international we think london's you know one of the major financial centers of the world or is it driven by partnerships i saw in your um, some of your press that you've got for example a strategic partnership with a carrier like like visa i mean so how do you how did you determine to open up london as opposed to going to asia for example
1: it's a strategy it takes so we're some, we're some
0: deliberation that went behind.
1: It. Oh, yeah. 18 months of deliberation. Okay. We're a very regulated company. So by regulation, we mean uh, we are certified by the networks, that being Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. We work with banks. So we're regulated by the bank, and we're regulated through the FDIC, OCC, FinCEN. These are federal agencies in the, in the U.S. In the U.S.
0: So when you, when you parachute into London, you've got a whole new set of regulations. A whole new
1: set of regulations. So that's why there's 18 months of planning ahead of time, yep. where we know that the market in Europe is pretty significant. Um, you have 400 million-plus people um you know very different in regards to how money flows because you have networks on the country level yeah um but we're it's a it's a it's a it's a strategy it's a determination to go build on a whole another area you know being the the Mm -hmm. eu the european union um we did canada before that um we launched canada about uh, a little over a year ago Uh, we have customers today here in the us that uh, want to build businesses in Canada. So we'll go service them. And then the same within the, in the EU. Um, the reason for London, so London is a, you know, the UK has more cards than any other country within the European Union. Um, obviously, uh, it's, a, it's a great place to work. Um, it's not the o- only office we're going to have in, uh, in Europe. We'll probably open up our office somewhere in continental Europe within the next probably six to nine months, uh, working that out now. That also means we're setting up another office here, either in the US or Canada, uh, in the coming months, um, to take advantage of new development centers and new opportunities around the world. And Asia is coming. Then that'll be, uh, that'll be next year.
0: So Jason, how does the company make money? You, you work with all these businesses and a lot of these uses that, um, Marquetta provides are customized by business. So how do, how do you guys make money?
1: So the majority of our revenue is made from interchange. And interchange is what merchants pay. Is that like a transaction <clears throat> fee? Yeah, it's like a transaction fee. So, um, whether in store or online, when you, as a consumer, pay through, uh, pay with your card—Visa, yep. Mastercard, yep. Discover, American Express—you know, China Union Pay—there's there's all kinds of cards out there. Uh, the merchant is paying a percentage uh, to this four party system as part of that transaction. And everybody
0: so, takes takes a, a piece of that.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, the networks, so Visa, MasterCard, American Express Discover, uh, the acquirer who's providing the, the services on the front end, what the right. consumer is paying into, yep. um, the banks that are the bank for the merchant and the bank that's behind the card, and then the issuer processor. So we take that interchange and we split that amongst um, ourselves and then we share that with our partners. So. We as Marketa, we are a portion of the interchange. We share back to our customers based on the amount of volume they're sending into our system.
0: So, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but is that a preset allocation amongst the four players in this interchange? Is it already, as an industry convention, is it established who gets what piece of that, of that transaction fee? So the or is it negotiated every time you have uh, a new business that you're get, getting into.
1: Yeah. So the interchange or what's also referred to as the discount rate is actually set by the network. So oh, okay. Visa has its own discount rate, MasterCard, Discover, American it. Express. Okay. Um, and then we for negotiate um, uh, sort of our piece. So we get our piece from the network. The network also, uh, gives their piece to, or, or shares their piece with, um, uh, the acquirer, uh, which is the, what you're paying yep. into. So it's, uh, basically the, the, uh, the, the um, uh, the, the network sets the discount rate and then it's shared amongst the, the, the other okay. parties. We get our share and then we, uh, negotiate with our banks to, to share our piece with them. Got it. Okay. Talk about competition. I mean, this is,
0: sounds like it's a huge sucking sound in this market. Businesses need uh, issuer processing no matter what they do. So how you guys must have competition. Oh, yeah.
1: We have formidable competition. So
0: how would you, I mean, by category, how would you describe that?
1: So, uh, I mean, credit cards have been around for a long time, and so has the technology that powers them. So we, we like to refer to them as sort of the legacy infrastructure. So,
0: so I'm going to pick on that piece. So okay. you, I know you have a strategic relationship with Visa in the sense that they I think they were they infused equity into the company as well. They infused capital. Capital. Um, but so are they both a competitor and a strategic investor?
1: No, Visa's not a competitor at all. So think of Visa is like Southern Pacific Railroad. So okay. they provide the rails so many companies can ride those rails. We're just one of the issuer processors that ride those rails. So okay. think of us as like the conductor and the locomotive, and then our customers are all of the train cars behind that. So we're leveraging their sort of rails to, and we, we you know we, they, they get a piece of the, of the volume or a piece of the interchange as part of that. So they, they don't compete at all. They actually enable all of this. And Visa and, and MasterCard is, is the same, it's, is a network of about 24,000 banks across the world. And those mm-hmm. banks uh, service both merchants uh, and service uh, issuer processors like us. So you probably have cards in your wallet. You might have like a Bank of America card. So right. Bank of America is the issuer behind your card. Mm-hmm. Visa's the network. Oh, the I, issuer I, I processor understand. is yeah, the that one helps. that makes the decision yeah. whether that should, transa- should authorize that transaction or not. Yeah. And then the acquirer is basically collecting all the information in an instant at the point of sale right. to send through all of that so that we can ultimately make a decision whether to authorize that transaction
0: So, so who or not. are... Who, I mean, who are your principal competitors? How do you think about that?
1: Our principal competitors are very large companies like first data uh, and they uh, These are companies that have you know obviously been in business for many 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 years you know some thirty to forty years they're bigger than you oh they're much much bigger than yeah. us uh, orders of magnitude larger than us and, and think about it like we we, the, we decided to go out and build marketa because we believe that. There were all these companies that haven't been invented yet where a card was either going to support their core business or be their core business. And we wanted to build a very modern version of a, of a first data or a, or, a, or a thesis. So we did that using modern open source development languages, modern hardware, modern architecture. So is, is,
0: is that your principal point of differentiation? It's a technology play? Your, it's, your point of excellence is, is in the technology itself?
1: So our point of excellence is how we service our customers. So we service our customers via an open API. So they have the capability to um, build products and design products that are specifically for their constituency, very large companies. They have, here's the four different products. You can go and build with Marketa and our platform. It allows a customer to go in and really have N number of options of, of how they want to go service their customers because they have all of these API calls and all of this technology where they can build a very, very specific product and how they want to hit to operate out in the field, how they want it to act uh, when it's swiped and that allows them to go service a, a constituency. So if you're a new company and, and you want to build a product to serve a very specific constituency, it's very hard to service a specific constituency with a, a, a sort of a generalized product, standardized product. product. A standardized product yeah. You want to go build something very specific for them. And that's where we come in. And that was our original brief belief in the beginning was that, you know, there, there are these businesses that are not going to want to build on top of a, build a standard product. They're going to build something that's very specific and our platform gives them the ability to so do that. So who
0: does the customization? Does the business do that using your open API? Can, do they customize themselves, or is a big component of what you do, it's Marketa-provided customization based on a, a questionnaire or customer specs that are given to you? We guide them, Yeah.
1: but this is their products. Think yeah. of us is like the Intel inside. Yeah. You know, the in, Intel powers many different types of products. It's up to that company to design, build, service, and yep. bring to market those products. Um, we are lucky enough to work with the, some of the greatest companies in the world who are building beautiful products that are designed very well and service these constituencies in, a, in an incredible way. So we like to think of ourselves as the intel inside in that, and we I provide the platform yeah. and guide them um, based on what we know around uh, this, in this industry and help them build these products to service their constituencies.
0: So, a bit, I mean, just kind of scrolling ahead because I want to jump into some other areas here for discussion. But, you know, if things go swimmingly over the next, I don't know, pick a time frame, three years, five years, ten years, where do you see marketa going? I mean, you've raised, you've got 250 employees. It sounds like you're starting to implement an international strategy strategy. Uh, you know, is it intergalactic domination? Is it? I mean, <laughs> w- w- what is it that you're 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 working toward?
1: Uh, payment cards on Mars. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, actually. I wonder if the, the today, I wonder if the lander was successful. It was successful. Oh, great. They landed
0: today. It was a, a, that's a marvelously successful
1: landing. That's here. incredible. Yeah. Um, so sky's the limit for us we have a lot of options um being a venture-backed company um you know there'll be a liquidity event at some point um the thought of building marketa under somebody else's umbrella which is mean being acquired isn't isn't terribly interesting to us so um, options would probably be the public market Um, i think based on how fast the industry is going um The options around the world, the opportunity around the world, Um, we think Marquette is a generational company. We think that, you know, just like Intel and powering, you know, laptops and phones and IoT devices, uh, the capability for companies to build new generations of card products over the coming years, that opportunity is immense. Um, It's immense around the world. So um, we see ourselves being a global company.
0: Do, do, just to ask the, kind of the frank question, do you worry about exits or do you just think performance, execution, growth? I mean, do you, you, you've, got, you've got a bunch of VCs. You've got a bunch of institutional capital sitting around your board table. You've got people who have invested a lot of money in the company. And at the end of the day, this is not philanthropy for them. They're looking for a return on their investment. And that return on investment, there's a clock ticking, I assume. Do you, do you worry about exits, whether it's an M&A deal or an IPO, or do you just think, screw it? I'm Look, I'm just going to grow this company and be efficient and aggressive. How do you how do you think about that?
1: So, no, I don't think about an exit. I don't think about m and I don't think about the public markets. Yeah. I'm more focused on the next 18 to 24 months and really building out uh, our strategy and our business in the United States and Canada and Europe. Uh, heading into Asia, heading into Latin America and South America, uh, Africa—you know, obviously an in, in, in incredibly fast-growing um, uh, 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 country of nations that where you see uh, M-Pesa has really taken hold, which is the network within Africa. Uh, how do we add cards to that? And, and on the other hand, I think you know, VCs—it uh, was typically about a ten-year time frame for an M&A exit or going public. That's definitely changed. And I think that's changed because companies are being built at massive scale. Now, you know, you look at Airbnb just announced, um, you know, their first billion dollars in, in revenue. It's a whole different level of scale than, you know, what we've experienced even 10 years ago within, within venture capital. The point so,
0: being, it takes longer to get to, to realize the.
1: It doesn't, know. it takes longer. It's that, is that you, there is more venture flowing into companies. Uh, who are at orders of magnitude of scale than they've been in the past. Like you know, back in the past, um, you could go public on you know not that much revenue. Yeah. You know, now companies are staying private much much longer, and it's absolutely paying off for the you know the, the capital private community, the private
0: investors who are watching the growth. The of employees, the, yeah. the
1: customers. So um, you know, yeah. an M and A event or going public is at a longer time horizon now.
0: If for people just joining us, I'm Doug Collum. Our guest this hour is Jason Gardner, the the founder and CEO of Marquetta, which is a, a card, a payment card processing company. Um, and we're talking about um, you know where Marquetta is going to be going in the next five to ten years. It, it's an interesting discussion because I do think that um, the IPO market is it's uh, it's volatile at the moment, but it's always dicey. I mean, as over over time. You know, by far and away, the biggest exit is an M&A transaction, just because it's, it's so much more difficult these days to go public. But your point, Jason, is a good one, which is companies tend to be staying private longer, in part because there's just enormous amounts of private capital willing to um, watch and wait as these companies grow. And uh, also, I've, I've heard, too, that there's a lot of... Um, there's a relief valve in the form of private secondary markets yep so if you have employees or investors who are anxious to monetize some of some of their stock, there's a there's a kind of an off exchange market that they can use to, 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 to do that
1: uh, yeah it's, a, it's referred to as a secondary yeah uh, there is a secondary market, but many of those uh, many of those investors are actually primary investors. Yeah, um, they look to pick up either uh, common shares, which are from employees, or they pick up um, uh, preferred shares, which are from investors. Right? Um, yeah, that happens at scale for sure.
0: So let me let me jump into the uh, you know the area of you as the CEO of the company. This is a far cry from selling tie dye T shirts in college.
1: Yeah, it's a lot more fun.
0: Is it? I was going to say, is it? <laughs> you know, there are different kinds of fun, but I mean, there's I guess the question that counterbalances is. It's also stressful, I assume. I mean, I, I do ask the question, and I'll ask it of you. I mean, do you sleep at night? Are you able to compartmentalize and, you, you know, you step off work and you go home and everything's fine? You've, you know, you've got other things going on in your life that are not work-related. How do you fare as a CEO of a company that's got some pretty substantial investment and investors
1: in it? It's through experience. It's from building three companies and I've seen a lot happen. I've experienced a lot. I've been in horribly stressful you know, uh, times in my life and building out these companies and I've been in incredible uh, happy times in my life. So those highs and lows have tra- taught me to really compartmentalize the things that I'm dealing with. I don't think, I think if everything, bothered you, you haven't done this before though i mean at this
0: scale, not at the scale at this rate
1: have you not at the scale but you learn how to really compartmentalize things i think that if everything bothered me um the company wouldn't be as successful as we are I really am able to sleep at night um i have a great family i've been married for 19 years my wife is a psychotherapist uh, definitely having a built-in psychotherapist helps a lot <laughs> um, yeah, she's been through three companies with me. Um, and I have great business partners.
0: You know, I have to tell you, I've, I've asked the question of several guests in past programs. You know, when you're stuck with a naughty business problem, something you just haven't encountered before, you know, who, who do you go to for, for counsel and guidance? And as a sounding board on what might work and what doesn't. And I've had two or three guests say they go to their spouse. Yeah is that i mean i don't i'm not putting words in your
1: mouth but no i um, do i i i go to my wife um i also go to my business partners the people i work with every day are I these mean, like
0: board members
1: no these are are tony ford our head of technology amri dahan our head of revenue uh dave matter who runs product yeah uh, these are folks who people you know, on I, your team people on my team this is penny DeFrank who runs hr uh, these are folks who, you know, I work through a problem with them. Um, you know, we've put an enormous amount of time in this company together. Like we've been through a lot, both personally and professionally to build out a business. Uh, and when we're dealing with hairy issues, um, we sit down and we talk about it as a team. What, what my wife helps me out with is really the emotional sides of things, which is just being able to come home and talk and not be judged, and not be worried, and not just yeah. be able to, you know, almost operate a- as a release valve, and um, she always has great perspective on things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would guess that one, one of the more difficult aspects of the business is just, it's true of every business, is people management. I mean, your your background strikes me as being both, a, as a balance between both people, people, good with people, and also good with technology, because you've had that in your in your prior experiences, you were programming computers at the age of nine. I mean, so, you know, where do you find most of your challenge as you as you run a company that's now eight years out of the box and has raised over a hundred million in capital?
1: I love people. I really enjoy with people, spending time with people, um, working with people. Uh, I was in it's really, I have an interview today and, um, you know, everyone says like, you know, you are a professional CEO. What do you love most about being professional CEO? And I said, people, I think over time I've gotten very attuned to what the company needs from a people perspective. Um, I actually really enjoy focusing on that part of it. Uh, building out teams and motivating people and focusing on vision and purpose. Um, it took me a really, really long time to, to figure that out. I, think. I was
0: going to ask you, do you get better at it?
1: You definitely get better at it. What really helped me is uh, we brought on an executive coach for our team. Uh, and she oh. has done an absolutely remarkable job because she, she actually works with a lot of companies in Silicon Valley. And you just don't know what you don't know. And when she works with you, she really begins to understand like how you make decisions um and it's been a eye-opener for me
0: so jason what prompted that decision to bring on an executive coach and not just not just for any one or two people but for the entire executive team is that how you guys did
1: it we talked about it for years um and i just i didn't really i'm like i don't i don't need a coach like the company's doing great like why i don't why, don't, why do i need to like have somebody to look over my shoulder um, it's not like that at all. It's it's part built-in therapy. It's part understanding people dynamics. It's was a it part... an
0: open playbook where everyone was transparent? I mean,
1: yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, well, you go through. Um, um, she has her uh, uh, her process. She takes everybody through that same process. Okay. Yeah. And then she begins to understand how we all work together, and then she points out what's working and what's not working, and then over time we begin to just become better selves um, better leaders better managers better people uh, it's really been uh, an amazing process over the last um i believe she's been working with us for about 10 months at this point so it's not uh, a one-off
0: it's not a one-off it's not like a drive-by shooting where she comes in and does it's it. definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's a it's a protracted process right where she stays with the executive team so, in effect, what you're doing is effecting a cultural
1: change within the company. Yeah, you can't um, – what I've learned through this process is is you th- – th- this person cannot come in and actually uh, create change in a transaction. It needs yeah. to happen over a period of time because we're human beings. Like, you know, it, it was interesting somebody uh, – somebody was saying to me, just like, oh, you know, you know, building companies is like growing a garden. I'm like, it's nothing like growing a garden. <laughs> You yeah. know, the the eggplants are not screaming at you. The tomatoes aren't on fire. Yeah. You know, the bell peppers wonder why there's no more bell peppers here. Uh, you know, there, it's, <laughs> it's you're dealing with, you know, dynamics of human beings, which is, yeah. is very difficult. And, and when you're operating at this scale, it's really important to, uh, you know, to have somebody who can help you get to the next step.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering as I'm, I'm focusing on this, we only have about a minute or so left. But I'm curious to know, as a result of this, has your management style changed?
1: Yeah, I'm more focused on people. I'm more. I'm creating more space for myself, so I'm focused on the next 18 to 24 months and not focused on literally what's right in front of me. Um, which, as a founder and CEO, you tend to want to get your hands into everything. Uh, and I've learned to let go a lot and more focus on the future and focus on people and focus on myself.
0: And you're seeing changes as well in the other people who are also everybody thinking, I'm yeah.
1: seeing changes at home. You know, I'm been married for 19 years. I have two kids. Like Three cats, a guinea pig. Um, <laughs> everybody's been affected by um, not only the change, but we've been affected by each other and our partnerships and uh, affected by definitely um, uh, our coach, for sure.
0: So we've got about 30 seconds. If you're going to offer one piece of advice to people listening in, aspiring entrepreneurs, what would you offer?
1: Uh, what I would offer is is you should absolutely go and do it. There is little downside to failure. There is massive upside to failure because you're going to learn a lot yeah. And there's massive upside to success. So you know, there's this fear of wanting you to to this fear of wanting to go do something. Um, you should definitely do it because regret's terrible.
0: Yep. Good. Hey, this has been great. We've been speaking this hour with Jason Gardner. Um, thanks for joining us. It's been an interesting me, Doug. discussion. It's been great. Um, and where can people go to learn more about Marketta?
1: Uh at Marketta.com M-A-R-Q E-T-A.com. Great.